On the show today, Rich and I discuss the upcoming college football season, and we drink a dead man's handle. I'm your host, Brad Jackson, and you're listening to the August 21st, 2023 edition of Coffee and Koshan. So, Rich, it is almost here. It is almost time for college football season. I could not be more excited. I am ready for television to be good again, uh, for there to be something to watch on the weekends instead of all this crap reality show while everyone's on strike. Um, I can't wait for college football season. This is my favorite time of the year. It also means that some point, somewhere in the near future, these 105-degree days will come to an end. Uh, which I'm also very much looking forward to. Um, but so much has happened in this offseason in the college football world. It is going to be a completely different college football uh, experience for people going forward. Uh, we're going to get to some rules changes in a minute, but first we just need to run over how the landscape of college football has changed. Now, none of these are going to go into effect in until next year, but um, this is going to be, there's going to be a sea change of all the different conferences and who's in and who's out and who's where and who they play and everything. Now, let's start with the, the, the thing that kicked all this off to begin with. A few years ago, Texas and Oklahoma decided they were going to leave the Big 12, come to the SEC. That starts next year. Um, that is going to be, I think, great for college football. Um, we get to renew the AM rivalry, the Arkansas rivalry. Um, uh, I think this is going to be awesome. Um, that is going to bring the, <laughs> the, uh, SEC to 16 teams, uh, which is going to be interesting to see how we all handle that. Um, but that will not be the only 16 team conference because just a few weeks ago, the PAC 12 disintegrated. Uh, they had had trouble getting a media rights deal. Um, all these, all these conferences are on a, a network, right? Whether that's CBS or ESPN or Fox or what have you. And that TV deal that's worth billions of dollars is a reason why Texas and Oklahoma went to the SEC and why schools uh, go here and there. Well, it turns out the Pac-12 could not get a traditional uh, TV deal. Their only option was a streaming deal from Apple, and many of the schools did not want to deal with that. So Colorado jumped ship and went to the Big 12, and that started this sort of domino effect. Uh, then within a few days, you saw Oregon and Washington heading to the Big 10 to join USC and UCLA, which will also move there next year. Um, and then you saw the sort of uh, four-corner schools, Arizona, Arizona State, uh, Utah, also decide to leave. They came to the Big 12 uh, with Colorado, and all of a sudden, the Pac-12, the, the, they call themselves the Conference of Champions, um, <laughs> uh, has nobody left. <laughs> the only people left at this point are Cal, Stanford, Oregon State, and Washington State. It seems that nobody wants those four schools, um, and they are kind of stuck right now trying to figure out what's going to happen after the end of this year. Um so that leaves you a Big 12, Big 12, with 16 teams, uh, including Arizona, Arizona State, uh, UCF, which comes over, um, 
Cincinnati, which comes into the conference, Houston, which comes into the conference. This is going to be a very different-looking Big 12. The Big 12 used to be the conference of Texas and Oklahoma, to be blunt. And um, now it's going to be wide open because uh, a school like Colorado, which is up and coming with a coach like Deion Sanders, Lord knows what they're going to do in the new look Big 12. Uh, Kansas State could really thrive. TCU, I think, has a chance to do really well. Uh, If Texas Tech can ever get their shit together, they might have an opportunity there. Uh, Then you have a Big 10, 10 again, with 18 teams, 18 teams. This is a conference that now spans both coasts. Um, The travel costs playing in the Big Ten are going to be incredible. You have a school like Oregon or Washington State or UCLA or USC that has to travel all the way to a place like Rutgers. (laughs) I mean, just thinking about that for a minute, the travel costs are going to be insane. That's going to be a, a real mess of a conference. Um, I think the SEC is probably in the strongest position going forward um, with, I say, just 16 teams. Um, But uh, all of this is completely changing the landscape. The uh, conference that I think is next for some sort of upheaval is going to be the ACC, where you see schools like Florida State, Clemson, North Carolina, uh, Miami, anxious to get more money. And they have a weird television deal which locks them in for uh, like the next decade. And um, these schools are trying to find a way, trying to find the right lawyer, trying to find the right judge to wiggle out of this uh, contract and find their way into a better TV deal. And I think eventually because lawyers are lawyers and, and that's the way this country works, they'll find a way And I think the remnants of the ACC will probably join the remnants of the Pac-12 and come up with something. But eventually you'll have those ACC schools join either the SEC or the Big Ten. Uh, And then it's just down to, like, Notre Dame. And what is Notre Dame going to do as the lone uh, heavy independent that's left? Um, And I think that'll be interesting to watch. Uh, But, you know, it, 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 it makes me wonder, Rich, as all these schools move, Granted, you get a lot of fun new matchups, but you lose a lot of tradition, and and I think that makes a lot of people sad because these schools that have played each other for uh, decades, uh, sometimes more than a century, uh, will not necessarily do that anymore. OU and OSU are no longer going to play each other once uh, Oklahoma leaves to go to the SEC, and that'll be be sort of a sad thing. That Bedlam game uh, earned its name. It was always uh, crazy, and depending upon where that game was, uh, there was a lot of uh, potential for there to be an upset. Um, so uh, I don't know. I, w- what are your thoughts on these these crazy changes that we've seen in the conferences? Well, to your point about losing tradition, I think we've been on the way to that for a while now, which is sad. One of the reasons many of us prefer college sports to the NFL and not to denigrate, I love the NFL also, but there is that tradition and, you know, you you would see the same players for years and, you know, until they graduated and with the transfer portal and things like that, we've started to see a lot more fluctuation in the team. So they had already kind of moved almost to an NFL model in that regard, but it is huge when you lose those rivalries for a long time here in Arkansas, the Razorbacks played in two stadiums, uh, one in Fayetteville where the school is located and then one in Little Rock. And I forget how many 
how the games were divided between the two. But at one point, as Northwest Arkansas grew as a region and became more of a destination, it went down to two games in Little Rock, uh, a season which rankled a lot of fans because you've got all these people in the capital or in the southern part of the state who had graduated from the school and who donated a lot of money and who'd held seats for decades. And all of a sudden they lost that. And so it's it's just interesting the way football is shaking up on the college level, like on the pro level, where everything is becoming not rootless, but it's just not as grounded in tradition, exactly like you said. And the monetary aspect is it. Uh, it's funny. So apparently uh, Condoleezza Rice called uh, the ACC on behalf of Stanford. George W. Bush called on behalf of SMU. But uh, according to uh, uh, The Athletic, uh, the one of the ACC officials joked that it would be more effective if the politicians sent them money instead of making phone calls. <laughs> Yeah, it's nice to hear from you all. Just send us a fucking check. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it is going to be very interesting to see the new rivalries emerge. You know, I'm very biased towards the SEC, and I love seeing the SEC really poised to become this really dominant conference. Uh, but it's going to be interesting. And then another factor beyond the travel cost, when you look at the coast-to-coast games, is will the time differences affect the players you know if all yes, of a sudden they're yes. playing at what their internal clock thinks is seven o'clock in the morning or something like that or midnight yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i i actually think that's a really good point and and I, this is all about college football that's what this is all about because that's where all the money comes from that supports you know the lacrosse team or the quidditch team or whatever the fuck else they have <laughs> at school but um uh the thing is there are other sports at a school and those other sports often play a lot more often than once a week, right? Right. Um, football is every Saturday. Um, but you have sports like softball, baseball, tennis. Uh, and they, they may have multiple uh, – basketball. They may have multiple games in a week. And if they're flying back and forth and back and forth across the country, that is going to wear on them. There is no way around it. That is going to be exhausting and I'm interested to see how schools deal with that because I don't think there's an easy answer. Obviously, everyone is doing this because the money is impossible to pass up. And it's funny, we, we think about, we think about uh, college versus the NFL and all that sort of things. But if you're, an, if you're a college coach, if you are um, a college coach at a big school like Alabama or Georgia or Texas or USC or whatever, you're, you're earning a hell of a lot more than a coach in the NFL. I mean, you are making incredible money. You are you are undoubtedly the highest paid public official um, in your state. Undoubtedly, there's no question about it. And you are making enough money that your grandkids' grandkids are going to have money <laughs> left over. Um, I mean, it's ju- it's just the way it is because of the the money you bring into the school, the attention you give to the school, all that sort of stuff. If you can win in college football. You will make money like nobody's business, um, and you become legend. I mean, look at someone like Nick Saban. The man is literally a living legend. He's a statue outside the 
the uh, stadium in which he he works. Like, I mean, he's <laughs> he's he's a king of of the state of Alabama, um, and uh, I think that that sort of difference between college and the NFL. I mean, you mentioned this a little bit that the tradition and the um, uh, all the sort of pomp and circumstance that goes with college football. I think I think to like. Um, the entrance to uh, Virginia Tech where they play Enter Sandman and the entire stadium of 80,000 people sings it along <laughs> every single word as the players run in. Or like a whiteout game at Penn State where the entire stadium of 100 plus thousand people all dressed in white, waving white um, uh, pom-poms, screaming. Like that is an environment you do not get in the NFL. No matter what great stadium you have, if you're, trust me, I've been to Jerry World for a Cowboy game. It's not anything like a good college experience. And that's what I think some of us love about college football. It's it's the the environment you go to. Here at Texas, when we had, uh, a, we got a new athletic director several years ago, and he came in with this idea that um, because of the way our campus is situated in, in a booming metropolis at this point, uh, there isn't a lot of space for traditional tailgating like there used to be when I was there. Um, so what he did is he brought in a fair that like complete with like carnival rides and the whole nine yards. And he brings in concerts of people you've heard of beforehand for free and all these uh, food trucks, like like 50 different food trucks that you can just go and eat from. Like it's this whole like uh, fun festival atmosphere outside of the stadium every game. And it makes going to games so much fun. And last year... When Alabama came, it was our second game of the season. Uh, on one end of the stadium was the Fox pregame show. On the other end of the stadium was the ESPN pregame show. And on yet another corner of the stadium was the Longhorn Network pregame show. And I took my son to that game, and he made it on TV at each one of those places because <laughs> I'm a proud dad. And um, uh, it was just it was an incredible atmosphere, and you get that at great college football games, whether it's Ohio State, Michigan, or or Georgia, Alabama, or or uh, Texas A and M, Arkansas. I mean, you just get that all over the place, and that's what makes college football so special. Yeah, and I'm gonna kind of go off on in a semi -tan on a semi tangent here and defend the salaries of these coaches because it's one of those things people love to denigrate. Oh, why does the coach make the most money? And you know, there are a couple of factors at play here. Like you said, football is often supporting other sports, so you yes. need these heavy hitters. But the other is that money usually isn't coming from public funds. No. You'll have all these alumni come together and create these trusts, create these foundations, and they pay the coaches separately because that's a way for schools to bring money in. And, you know, if you think colleges have too much money, that's a whole other discussion. But that's the way that alumni continue to connect to their alma mater is the football games and, and other sports. And so having these coaches and having those foundations really supports a lot of other things that goes on in the university at the university and enables things like you were talking about with having like the fair be before every game. Yes. And, and they earn that money because it, it, uh, it is critical. The exposure it gives to schools is unmatched. Um, and that's why it's so important. Um, 
But uh, yes, you're right. If, if we're going to have a discussion about why there's so much money in college <laughs> sports, that's a whole other show. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that changes for this season uh, are some key rules changes. And uh, I think the biggest of those is the changes in the clock. Walk us through that. So college football has differed from NFL, the NFL in one major way for decades now. And that is that after a first down, the clock stopped. So that's something that really matters to teams as you're heading into the end of a game. If you're down is it's a way to preserve timeouts that's going away. So now after a first down, just as it does in the NFL, the clock is going to continue to run. And they have also done away with consecutive timeouts, which are often used to ice the kicker. And uh, they've also changed penalties in the first and third quarter. So traditionally, if you committed a penalty at the end of the quarter on the last play, they would extend the time and give you another play. Now that play will just go to the second or start of the second or fourth quarter. If a penalty occurs at the end of the second or fourth, then they will have the continuation, but it's all designed uh, to speed up the game and make it just a little bit shorter. Uh, Estimates are that it's going to take about six to eight plays off of each game. But I think it also, there's got to be a monetary underlying reason, which is younger kids and the, the next generation of viewers don't necessarily have the attention span. And so I wonder if this is like what we're seeing in Major League Baseball, where they're trying to figure out ways to shorten the games and speed them up to keep people paying attention, thus paying attention to the advertising that goes on during the game. Yeah, I think that's a good point, particularly because um, as college football has moved from more of a run-first environment to a pass-first environment, that clock has been a real problem because you see teams that um, can run play after play after play and milk almost no time off the clock. And these games have stretched. I remember not long ago, was it I don't know, three or four seasons ago, there was a uh, Texas Texas Tech game that went for it felt like four hours. I mean, like it just it was never ending. Um, and I think something like this will help speed that along. Um, and it's really a long time coming, honestly. Yeah. And another big change, and one that I'm the most interested to see how it will play out, is they're really trying to crack down on fans rushing the field. Now, I love watching fans rush the field after a very emotional victory, but also I am not the one who has to budget for new field goal posts and things like that. So now if your fans rush the field, that's $250,000 for the first fine, uh, I think three fifty dollars for the second, and then $500,000 for each subsequent uh rushing the field penalty after that. And I don't know how they're going to enforce this. Like I'm guessing they're probably going to install cameras everywhere, but trying to read about it, the NCAA officials are like, well, you'll just have to have good communication with your fans and talk to them about what penalties they will personally face. But I I just don't know how they're going to make that work. It seems insane to try to track down you know, 50,000 drunk college kids uh, who rush the field after an emotional game. Yeah, and honestly, I mean, this makes me think of that Tennessee-Alabama game from last season. 
So Alabama goes into Knoxville. Tennessee wins for the first time in seems like a lifetime. And um, Tennessee, of course, rushed the field. And I would expect nothing less. And that is a stadium of 100,000-plus people, and I think they were all on the field after that game. Um, and I would think that Tennessee would say, fines be damned, we're so excited, we don't really care. Um, it's, it's a strange thing to, to try and levy a half-million-dollar fine on. I, I, I don't know. I find that to be really weird. Yeah, and you know that there are donors out there who have the means to just say, all right, uh, you know, let's us four get together and, you know, figure out a way to cover this. So I don't know that it's really going to be that much of an obstacle. I don't, in the moment, it's all passion. I don't think anybody's sitting there thinking, oh, I might get hit with a $50 fine. Yeah, that's the thing. And, And you're right. None of these schools are in the situation, particularly if you're in the SEC or the Big Ten, where they're starving for cash from their donors. And if you were to beat, you know, the team you never thought you could beat or your biggest rival on the at the last minute or something like that and fans rush the field, there are going to be plenty of people who line up to pay that check. I really just don't think it's going to be that big a deterrent. Um, yeah. I don't. I really don't. Um, yeah. yeah, I I think most of the rule changes are good, and this one kind of seems like, I mean, I guess it is a problem, but I, I think that the, the NCAA is just going to have to accept that they've created a product, or they, they're in charge of a product that's so popular. That it's it so emotional. Makes, yes, that, that it's just comes with the territory. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I, I really don't see the point in doing something like this because I don't think in the end you're going to get much out of it. Um, but that's just me. Okay. So when you're watching college football, you absolutely need a cocktail or some alcoholic beverage, because as we just mentioned, it is one of the most emotional sports out there. (laughs) The ups and downs are constant. Uh, you will scream in agony and you will scream in joy. And, uh, today we have perhaps the best named cocktail I've seen in a long time. The dead man's handle. Walk us through this one, Rich. This sounds great. So I came across this. I, I know I'm a broken record on Instagram. There is a bar owner. I don't know where his bar is named Louis Fern, L-U-I-F-E-R-N. And he's from uh, Brazil, but he's a huge tequila guy. So he's always ranking tequilas and making different tequila cocktails. And that's how I came across this. And the dead man's handle into your, your uh, elevated craft shaker. You throw one and a half ounces of Blanco tequila, three quarters of an ounce of Aperol, half ounce of fresh lime juice, one half to three quarters ounces of Orgeat, which is an almond syrup that's used in a lot of tiki drinks. Uh, It's, you know, if you want it more dry, do the half ounce. If you want it more sweet, do the three quarters of an ounce. Throw in some ice, shake that up, strain it over crushed ice and into a glass, obviously, and then top that with some tahine, which if you don't know what tahine is, it's this delicious uh, Mexican condiment. It's got some salt, a chili powder, some uh, lime in it. And despite, you know, what you might think from hearing that combination of flavors, it's traditionally used to uh, season fruit and things like that. So you might put it on your watermelon or something like that. And so that's why it goes really well with this cocktail. And it's just a, a very refreshing 
kind of a different drink. The the orgeat gives it that almond sweetness. Uh, you get a little bit of uh, slight bitterness from the aperol. Uh, you get that you know the different flavors of the tequila depending on which type of blanco you used. And the lime, of course, brings that brightness of the citrus. And being in crushed ice, it's very good for handling the emotions of college football, especially when it's 105 degrees outside, because these heat waves just will not stop. I love the sound of this. Now, Orjat or Orgit or however you say it, um, (laughs) this is not something that everybody probably has, right? You said this is mostly a tiki drink thing? Yes. Uh, you can order it from Amazon. Uh, you can find it other places. I got the Trader Vix variety, I believe. Let me, let me, uh, look, it's either Trader Vix or Trader Joe's, but not Trader Joe's. Uh, the, the yes, Trader Vix or Jot. And the reason I like that is it has a long shelf life. I've bought Orjat in the past for other concoctions and it's good for a month after you open it. And it's, uh, you know, not something you use just a whole lot of. So you're buying this like $15 bottle for one ounce. So I would recommend the Trader Vix. I'm sure that uh, it's not the absolute best one on the market. I've seen people in, you know, these increasingly insane cocktail recipes where people are like, shaving blocks of ice down for their drinks. And I've seen them talking about making it homemade, but as much as I am a proponent of fresh squeezed citrus and things like that, at some point you have to just call it and say, I'm going to buy this. Particularly because I mean, life goes on, right? I mean, there's <laughs> there are other things you have to do. <laughs> you can't spend your whole time shaving blocks of ice. <laughs> I mean, I realize that video drives a lot of that, but it's insane. I'm also, you know, I just make ice with water. You know, I have filtered water, but uh, this whole chase for like perfectly clear clear cubes and things like that, uh, I just, I don't have time for it. I don't have time for that either. (laughs) (laughs) I don't care if my ice is a little cloudy. (laughs) I've never been one for that. Uh, All right, so there you go. So when college football season starts next week, you can have a great cocktail, and uh, now you're up to date on all the uh, all the changes in college football. Uh, thanks again, Rich, as always. Hey, thank you, Brad.